since I saw an ethical. I speak my mind and it's strictly political. Alright, hello and welcome to Strictly Political for Season 1, Episode 10 of The West Wing in Excelsis Deo. I'm Matthew Bryan, joined as always by the spectacular Mason Kennedy. How are you doing, Mason? Matt, I'm doing great, and as always, I'm just excited to be here talking about the West Wing. Yes, and we are talking about um, this episode here that is the eighth highest rated episode on IMDb of the entire series. So, you know, good episode to be here on today. It is a good episode, and I'm really excited to talk about it. I think that this is uh, one of the first episodes that really, truly hits its stride for this series, uh, and it, it brings good tidings for the rest of the show. Absolutely. I think this is a very stereotypical West Wing episode in, in a good way, right? That, like, you know, this could be dropped into, you know, season six or season four or whatever, right? And it would, wouldn't feel out of place there, right? Whereas I think through the first nine episodes, we really get a lot of, um, you know, building blocks obviously are really good and are setting up these characters that we love. But this is an episode that could exist really anywhere uh, in the series. But before we before we hop into the episode, uh, I have some, some exciting news uh, today. Uh, I have received our first bit of feedback from somebody who I did not know before I started this podcast. That's ex- exciting news. Uh, it's from Christine Nestler. And um, she said that uh, she is loving the show. She's a longtime listener. Which, you know, it's only been nine weeks. It can't be too long of a listener, but I appreciate that anyways. And uh, she says, uh, just has some suggestions on our on, on, on our volume levels, which is something that I, I'm constantly working at. And uh, also she, she she says here that um, that I only requested positive feedback. That, 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 that is a joke, in fact. Uh, I do appreciate any feedback that people have. And uh, thank you to, to Christine for... for uh, sending me our, our first ever email that we received. Very exciting. Absolutely. And uh, though this is the first person that has sent feedback that you don't know, uh, I want to take a moment to say, hi, Mom. Thank you for the feedback. Ah, very fancy. Um, all right. So uh, let's hop into the episode here. Uh, like I said, it's episode uh, In Excelsis Deo. Um, it is, uh, originally aired, uh, December 15th, 1999, uh, one week after I was born, uh, directed by Alex Graves and written by Aaron Sorkin and Rick, Rick Cleveland. All right. Do you have a, uh, uh, 15 minute, uh, or not 15 minute, a two minute, uh, summary to hop into here. I hope so, Matt. Uh, let's get it started. In this episode, the uh, A-plot that I'm calling the A-plot is that the D.C. police are calling Toby because they found a business card in the pocket of a houseless veteran that died at the Korean War Memorial. Toby doesn't uh, know doesn't know him, but he recognizes his status as a veteran and a Purple Heart recipient. He tracks down the vet's brother and uses the president's name to organize an honor card funeral. The president chews him out, but in the end, he ends up supporting him, and Mrs. Lanningham joins Toby for the funeral. The B-plot is that Josh continues to worry about Leo's pill story getting out, and wants to do a preemptive strike. Leo wants to start planning an exit strategy, but the president refuses. Against Leo's wishes, uh, uh, Josh and Sam both visit Lori and ask for a name uh, from her or one of her colleagues, uh, assuming that her as a sex worker in the D.C. area, she might have some dirt on a Republican they can use to protect Leo. 
They both embarrass themselves and damage Sam's relationship with Lori, and Leo ends up finding out because he had them tailed, and he chews them out as well. The C-plot is that uh, a high school senior named Lowell Lydell, uh, or Lowell Lydell, was attacked by younger children, uh, and it is pretty obvious that it was because he was gay. He's in critical condition in a hospital. CJ speaks out about or speaks about it in the press conference, uh, but Leo thinks that she's going too far since they don't know uh, where they'll land on hate crime legislation, and they're very busy right now, and they won't be able to deal with this until after the break anyway. The president learns that Lydell died in the hospital while he was watching a children's choir. Uh, Charlie tells him it's a very poignant moment where a lot of young people are around him while he learns of this. And then, since I have 30 seconds left, I'm going to go ahead and throw in some odds and ends here. Uh, the president goes shopping for old books for Christmas. Donna wants skis for Christmas. Josh gets her a book about skiing instead, but with a very nice personal note. And it looks like CJ and Danny uh, are continuing their flirtationship, and they compare reasons why they should or shouldn't date. And in the end, CJ asks Danny for a date uh, in order to get convinced about why they should or should not legislate about hate crimes in America. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a great summary there. And yeah, like you said, I think that we, we, we can hop into um, the, the Toby storyline here that is, um, you know, like you said, primarily the, 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 the A storyline. You know, usually the the... A storyline is usually I like to pick the one that is featured in the title, but none of them are really featured in the title here. Um, but yeah, like you said, uh, it starts that um, that the Ginger Toby secretary receives a call from the the DC police, and um, you know it turns turns out that um, that the, the the man who died, a uh, Walter Huffnagel. Um, had been um, wearing a jacket that, that featured Toby's business card in it because Toby had uh, donated it to to Goodwill. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, right off the start, right, you recognize that there's, there's a certain level, right, where nothing's really being done about this this guy, right, that he's not, not seen, as, seen as a high priority, right, that, you know, they call Toby and Toby goes to the police precinct and then from there, he is sent to the uh, to the Vietnam uh, War Memorial there, and you know, all in that time, they have not done anything to move the body, right? That there, that it, it, it's still sitting there. You know, they've you know draped his um, draped his blanket, you know, over his face, but that's the extent of what they've done. And you know, you know, Toby Toby is the first person to sort of recognize and to point out that. You know, actually, this man is, is is eligible for a military funeral. He's eligible for, you know, to, to receive, you know, after death care by the VA, but that that is not something that is even, you know, crossed the mind of the of the D.C. police that are working here. And, you know, you sort of get the impression, right, by how much Toby has to sort of pull strings and work hard, right, that, that was something that was, it was not going to happen, right, that this is a an example not only of somebody who you know fell through the cracks um here in his life you know obviously you know being a homeless veteran that that that, that died from exposure but that you know in all likelihood he was going to fall through the cracks even in death right he wasn't going to receive the proper funeral that he was he was entitled to right we see here an example of one of those pure coincidences that you know the the 
jacket that Toby donates to the Goodwill just happens to be, you know, just happens to have one of his business cards, and that just happens to go uh, to this veteran, and and he happens to die in it. Like, all these things are adding up to the only reason that this guy got the funeral is because of this very, very specific situation that, that it led to. And otherwise, like you're saying, uh, he would have probably just been, you know, sent away hardly ever thought of ever again. So so it's very clear that he could have easily fallen through the grate of forgetting, you know, and, and just, like, passed into the void, essentially. Right, and I think that it's, like you said, that there's all these, you know, coincidences and proper, you know, circumstances ha that happen, and they, you know, ultimately ends up with him getting a thing that he is he is entitled to, right? A, a a burial in a military cemetery with a full military funeral, right? And so it sort of, you, you know, highlights, you know, and we'll, we'll jump ahead a little bit, right? That, that, you know, once once Toby sort of is getting a little bit in trouble for the steps that he took to, to arrange this funeral, you know, the president says, you know, don't you think that if this happens, you know, every homeless veteran's going to come out of the woodworks? And, and Toby's response is like, like, I hope they do, right? Like, I hope that every veteran gets, you know, access to all of the things that they're entitled to, right? All of the benefits, whether it's, you know, VA healthcare or access to, you know, VA loans or a military funeral, right? It's like, it's like you know, to the point that the point that Toby is making is like, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Walter got this and I do it again because, you know, everybody deserves this, right? Not just the people that, you know, happen to have a tangential relationship to a very important, you know, White House staff member, right? That it's, this, this, this shouldn't be the exception, right? It should be the rule, right? These people are getting these things that they're, you know, they've earned with their, with their, uh, you know, work. Absolutely. And I think that another point that uh, Sorkin and, and the writers make rather subtly very impressively is that you know uh, these these veterans aren't looking for everything they're not looking f you know to have like banquets and and you know handouts of plenty like the real core of it is uh that they just want recognition that they just want to be seen as you know the veterans that they are the service that they've provided and and that's all that they're really looking for and i think that i i only say this and i only say that they showed it because we have this really nice interaction right after Toby departs from, you know, his interaction with the police where he goes up, he's, he's investigating where this, uh, where this veteran is from. And he, there's a little stand at the Korean war Memorial and it's just a guy selling, you know, leaflets or he has a guest book, stuff like that. Uh, but they have a little interaction and Toby never like says, he never says, thank you. He never says, I appreciate your service. Like he, he never says anything like that. He just does the simple act of introducing himself, asking if the man's a veteran, you know, telling him who he is, asking who, what his experience is, all these things. And that is in and of itself a very warm, positive interaction that kind of, uh, I don't know, like the, the guy leaves or as Toby leaves, the guy has a smile on his face. He clearly appreciated that Toby took the time to talk to him. And at the end of the day, that's all that we're getting for this veteran who's passed away. We're just getting the bare essentials of, of recognition that this man served in Korea, that he, he was awarded the purple heart. That's like, that's all he, you know, that's all Toby's looking for. 
Right. And I think, you know, you know, again, just the fact that, you know, he's sort of taking, take, taking these next steps, right? You know, and, and you see this, this, you know, that, that ultimately, right, Toby finds out um, that the man who died, Walter, that he has, he has a, a brother who is also, also homeless and, and Toby eventually finds him and, you know, he, he appears to be, you know, you, you know, somewhat, um, you know, men, mentally, developmentally challenged and, you know, there's, there's, you know, another homeless man that comes in and sort of helps, helps facilitate that, you know, and, and, and Toby gives him, you know, empties out his wallet, gives him all his money, right? And this guy is, you know, you know, hesitant to even take that, right? That these aren't, you know, yeah, I think, I think you're right. They, they, they do a good job of, you know, showing these people aren't, you know, greedy. They're not, you know, anything like that, right? That they're just people who, you know, want, you know, in this case, obviously, with, with the veterans, right? Something that they've, that they've earned, right? And I think that, you know, you know, you know, having, you know, you know, and I think that something else that's sort of, I think, powerful and connects to all of that, right, is the fact that they chose to set Walter's death to be at the Korean War Memorial there, right? That that is where he had chosen to 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 sleep right even though you know like like his brother points out right that they knew that it was going to be a very cold night and it was going to be you know a very dangerous night right and that obviously in a place like dc you know people that are that are that are living on the streets die you know in pretty large numbers every year right but that you know he he he, he chose to be you know you know in and, and, and to spend, you know, his, his what ultimately ended up being his last night at the at the Korean War Memorial there, right? You know, you can imagine, you know, if he served with with a friend or a, a family member or or whoever, right? That you know, per, per, perhaps died when when he was wounded, right? And the idea to you know be close to where that name is etched into the stone there, right? Um, you know, I think that it's a very a very powerful and a very you know telling story of this character who obviously we we never meet right in terms of, of Walter Huffnagel but I think that you know the fact that he chose to spend you know what ended up being his last night you know at the at the memorial to to the war that he served I think tells you a lot about him and you know makes us the us the the watcher you know root for him to to to, to receive the, the the you know funeral he deserved at the end I think Um, all right, and then the um, the secondary part of the sort of A storyline, the like A1 storyline, is that we get, you know, really Mrs. Lanningham, we get her backstory fleshed out quite a bit more here, right? Is that, you know, you know we had learned in, in I believe, episode five um, that, that, that Mrs. Lanningham um, had two sons who had, who had died and we get the backstory here which is that uh, mrs lanningham her only children she had two twin sons who were um in medical school together 
and they ended up dropping out of medical school to, 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 to serve in the Vietnam War because they did not want to um, apply for and get an, an exemption, right, and have somebody else go serve and potentially die in their place. And again, these were people who were, you know, choosing to be doctors for ultimately, you know, the right reasons, right? They said, hey, you know, you know they, need, they need medical care, you know, in this active war zone as much as possible and that it turns out that they had died on on christmas eve 1970 and i think that that you know you know explains right that miss Lanningham tells the story to charlie out of a you know explanation of why she does not get into the holiday spirit right that you know as as somebody who is you know not only widowed but but but, but predeceased by by both of her children and the fact that they died in a tragic circumstance that was, you know, so close to the holiday, right? I think that it, you know, you know, really sets up what is a, what is a track, um, you know, what is it, what is a tragic backstory for Mrs. Lanningham? And again, you know, sort of further highlights what we talked about, you know, in episode five, you know, the idea that, you know, the president is so impressed by Mrs. Lanningham's desire to even show up to work every day, right? That, you know, she's, she, she wants to serve her government, right? Even though I think it would be very easy and very even, you know, understandable, right? If she were to have, have gotten bitter and, you know, blamed and hated the government forever for the decisions that led to her, her, her only children dying, right? But instead of that, you know, instead of, allowing that sort of bitterness and hatred to to overtake her she's you know rededicated her life towards service and making a difference and i think that that you know is really highlighted by understanding her backstory here absolutely and i think that this plot in general from you know across the episode really speaks to the i don't know the the disparity between uh between how we think about veterans in, I don't know, the, the front of our minds versus how we treat veterans and the realities that a lot of veterans face. And that there's like a difference in action between the veterans that we remember and the veterans that are currently, you know, out there in the world and, and are suffering like uh, Walter is suffering in this episode. And so the, the message seems to be that like, it can't all be memorials and and statues and anything like that like it has to be we, we can remember the people that died but we also have to act for the people that are still living and that seems to be the message that that sorkin is trying to get across because we see like you're saying we see this widow we see a woman that's lost both of her children maybe realize that message herself maybe realize that and and want to take action in the moment and not just continue on remembering her sons, but maybe act a little bit in the present moment and be present for uh, the funeral that Walter ends up earning. So I don't know, that, that, that just seems like the broader message here. And we have, God, we have one of my favorite lines, one of the most heartbreaking lines in the entire series, for my money, uh, that is, uh, what is it? Um... I have it written down here. Uh, um, that Landingham talks about how she lost her twins the war, and she has this quote that is, uh, they had to be so scared 
it's hard not to think that right then they needed their mother. And yeah, that that's this is another moment where it's just heartbreaking to see these interactions between characters, uh, particularly with Charlie. I think there's two moments in this episode where Charlie kind of represents more than just his character. In this moment, you know, she points out that her sons were Charlie's age when they died. And Charlie's talking to a woman that's lost both of her children. Uh, Ms. Lanningham is talking to a man that lost his mother. And similarly, we later on, when we talk about the, the hate crime arc, uh, I think Charlie represents kind of, you know, another, another iteration of the same youth that are, are losing a, their lives. But for now, I just wanted to point out, right, that she's talking to Charlie, and they're in very similar, if not maybe perhaps mirrored boats. No, absolutely right. And we talked about this, you know, you know, back in episode five when the Sunningham's name was first brought up, right? But that I think that there's a real linking of these characters in general, right? That you know, you know, Charlie is, you know, in in the episode episode three where he's hired, right? That there's this intentional linking of his mother, his mother's death by, you know, by these these certain weapons that the administration is attempting to 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 ban or to 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 you know further regulate and you know the decision to 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 to, to bring charlie in right that you know the president says you know specifically in that scene you know where he says like you know we haven't had very much luck trying to ban these weapons but we're going to make a big effort of it when congress gets back from recess and i think that there's this linking and i think there's a linking there with miss landingham as well right that you have you know somebody who you know, again, it's it's a, it's an unspeakable tragedy to lose, you know, one child, much less, you know, all of your children all at once. And then instead of, you know, again, instead of, you know, having a sort of negative reaction to that or living in the past or whatever, right, that she's dedicated basically the rest of her life from from then on towards towards government service which, you know, specifically, you know, making sure that what happened to her doesn't happen to other people, right? And I think that, you know, you make the great point, right, that, you know, you know, yeah, you know, her kids were Charlie's age when they died, and Charlie was Charlie's age when his mother died, right? And that they have, you know, made the decision to to come together and to to serve this government not not even despite the tragedy that happened to them, but almost because of the tragedy that happened to them, right? And the recognition that, you know, they don't want what happened to them to happen to any other families. And so, you know, for Charlie, that's, you know, why he's so passionate about the gun control issue. And for Mrs. Lanningham, that's why she's, you know, passionate about, you know, you know, you know, the the Veterans Affairs, you know, story in this episode and just, you know, the general, you know, you know, desire to, you know, serve a government that is pursuing peace in the world, right? Because, you know, her sons were taken away from her long before their time, which doesn't want that to happen to anybody. And I think that that, you know, is a really powerful character development we see in both of them. And I think it's really highlighted, you're right, in, in that scene where they're, you know, comparing the similarities of their, their stories. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I think that 
the parallels are one of the things again that uh, that Sorkin does really well in a lot of his series, uh, and so I'm I'm always impressed with these connections that he's able to put forward. Uh, but yeah, I, I, especially because of the fact that Charlie and Miss Landingham are not necessarily you know side characters, but they're not like the, they're not upfront and central and central to the plots at least not yet. Uh, and so it's interesting to see that even as the main characters, you know, jump in and out and, and, and clash and, you know, lead the episodes, the background that these characters are painted against is also, you know, just alone, also something of beauty. Yeah. Um, so something, though, of... of, of a piece of trivia that I found when I was when I was uh, looking up for this episode that I think is sort of fascinating and ties into to, to what we were talking about how the um, you know you know that that something that this show puts on right is that there is you know oftentimes especially you know on veter Veterans Day or Memorial Day or whatever right that there's a real effort to be to, to, to publicly you know, thank veterans and publicly honor them, but that oftentimes they fall through the cracks. And what I found interesting about this is that when this episode was written, the show, the showrunners, they, they, they applied to the Pentagon to get a permit to film the funeral scene at Arlington National Cemetery. And they were granted because uh, the public affairs people at the Pentagon said like, oh yeah, you know, this is a real real, you know, important, you know, story that needs to be talked about, which I think is sort of interesting just in the fact that, like, that is, you know, that, like, that's what the government is focusing on instead of, like, dealing with these issues, right? So it's almost even more of the sort of surface level, you know, care for veterans, right? That it's like, oh, yeah, we'll allow you to, you know, film this episode about, you know, how shitty life is for veterans, but, you know, where are the steps that are being taken to rectify this, you know, what is a, what is a real, a real issue? Absolutely. It's a real life example of the themes that we've been talking about throughout this series so far in that, you know, it is the, it is the visuals that take precedent in these government affairs often uh, more so than the concrete steps that they're taking uh, that end up taking priority. Yeah. Um, um, another interesting piece of trivia that I found uh, related to, to this plot is that um, Rick Cleveland, who uh, co-wrote this episode, um, the character of Walter Huffnagel is um, based on based on his dad, who um, who was a, uh, a a veteran who died um, homeless and an alcoholic who, who died homeless. And again, I think that that's just, you know, something that, you know, you know, really connects, you know, in the, the, the sort of realness of, of this episode, right. And how relatable this can be. Right. That I think that, you know, a lot of people know veterans who are in, you know, really not, not, not so great circumstances, right. There's a, there's a, you know, homeless shelter that I've, that I've volunteered downtown where a whole half of it is reserved specifically for veterans because there is such a homeless veteran population, right? And I think that it is, you know, 
you know, a, a circumstance that, that, that's, you know, very obvious to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I think that they, they did an excellent job of, of, uh, touching on this, um, you know, really throughout this episode. Absolutely. And I appreciate, I mean, I appreciate the connection that the writer has that you have because it is easy to watch this show and think, sure, I know that that's happening, but you know, maybe they, it's easy to kind of abstract that and, and send it away. But you know, the reminder that these characters are not just based on, but like are examples of real people is, is an important reminder. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. And I think that, you know, the recognition, right. That especially, you know, with, with all of the services that in theory veterans are, are entitled to, right. It seems, you know, like it would be pretty difficult for somebody to get in, in, in such a bad situation to, to, to end up being, being homeless. But I think that's just an example of, you know, the fact that the government doesn't always work the way it's supposed to, right. And that people don't always get services and things that they are, that they are entitled to, that they've earned. And, you know, I think that that, is sort of what you know really puts a puts a finer point on on the Toby line I mentioned earlier, right? Where the president says, "Toby, if we start pulling strings, they don't you think every homeless veteran will come out of the woodwork?" To which response, I can only hope, sir, right? That they, you know, you know, to- Toby dreams of a system and you know, sort of a system of good governance, right, where people are not dying because they didn't get, you know, not only are people dying because they didn't get you know, healthcare, or they didn't get, you know, access to housing, which is a tragedy in and of itself, right? But it's like, you know, if a homeless, you know, if if a veteran dies homeless, they almost certainly died, despite the fact that there were services that they are entitled to, that they earned, that they are just not receiving, right? Whether that's healthcare, or that's housing. And I think that that's, you know, you know, an example, right, of, of not just a system that has inequalities, which obviously, you know, if you want to talk about healthcare and housing in this country, you know, we can go on for, you know, hours about that, right? But that, you know, you know, somebody who has done a job and as part of that job, they signed a contract that says you are entitled to these things and then they don't receive them, right? And that that is an an extra tragedy, right? Of just, you know, government incompetence. Right. And it comes across as nefarious almost at times because the fact that these are things that are offered and and confirmed you know by these contracts but as we can see toby is a exception and by far an exception to this idea that there's nobody going out there and seeking out the people that are potentially missing out on these things that they're promised by the government it's nobody's job to seek out you know veterans to make sure that they're keeping up with their uh you know what they've earned so it, it it's so easy for those things to fall through the cracks. Again, we, we use that phrase a lot this episode, but it's so easy for it, those things to be forgotten and, and lost over the years. And so again, it's like, these are, these are things that they have earned with no, there's no doubt that, that these things have been earned and promised to them. And so the fact that there's no safeguards to make sure that they're receiving them uh, comes at the cost of a lot of people's comfort in the end. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely right. And I think that, 
again, it's not the world's most, you know, sexiest issue, right? It's not going to be, you know, at the center of, of the, of, you know, any mass major political debate. Right. But it's like, these are the things the government does that are most likely to affect you on an everyday basis. Right. If you, you know, you know, if the system doesn't work the way it's supposed to, right. You know, if, you know, I mean, you know, you know, right. You know, you know, you know anything, right. Whether it's, you know, you know, veterans affairs benefits or, you know, small business loans or social security or Medicare or Medicaid or whatever, right? It's like if these programs don't work the way they're intended, that's the most real life impact something can have on people's everyday life, right? Much more than, you know, the massive political issues that are going to, you know, make front page news, right? And I think that that is something that this episode, you know, I think, highlights in a way right that like you know you know you know toby is sort of seems to be for most of the episode obviously until miss laningham sort of the only guy that cares about this right you know that you know the police officer that that, that toby first meets you know sort of you know tries tries to blow him off right and you know you know whatever right but that you know this is something that is just an example of something that you know really impacts this guy's life right obviously you know you know you know for for him to get this funeral right but it's like you can imagine if he's not getting this funeral you know what else was he entitled to that he missed right whether it's you know health care or you know loans or whatever right that that, that that veterans are entitled to and i think that that you know you know he, he's very clearly not the only one right and that that's something that you know Toby is sort of made aware of by there being a face on this, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? That it's, again, yeah, like you said, it's easy to hear about, you know, these sort of, you know, for these things to be statistics, right? To hear, oh, you know, only, you know, 80% of people receive the VA care they deserve. And you say, well, 80%, that sounds good, right? But it's like, well, no, like 20% of veterans is a shit ton of people, right? And that, you know, you know, sort of seeing the consequences of that, I think, you know, Puts, puts a face to this issue, right, you know, both for us, the audience, but also for, you know, Toby and, and the, the other characters on the show. Absolutely. And we see people, it's not just the police officer in sight, there are people in the West Wing that are super surprised at Toby's sudden interest in this issue. And I, I've kind of been categorizing the last few episodes, uh, at least when we come to the character of Mandy, in the sense that in some episodes it's business Mandy and in some episodes it seems to be more personal Mandy and business Mandy and personal Mandy have very different priorities and uh, and passions and so in this episode this is big business Mandy this time <laughs> she is not uh, she's not really concerned about uh, you know personal stuff she she is fighting for a lot of different things the example being that she really wants press people to be allowed in the bookstore while the president goes shopping uh but the other big thing is that again kind of surprising uh, to me at least when we were watching the episode mandy comes in and says you know toby why are you so, what are you doing where are you going you know do you know this veteran and when toby says no she's like then why do you care like she's so willing to just like write it off and be like well why do you care about this and obviously it would be kind of surprising if my coworker just kind of up and left the office because they just found out about somebody that they never met 
um, you know, passing away in the park. Obviously, that's the the instinct. Maybe is to be surprised, but again, these people are mandated to a lesser extent public servants that are trying to serve the country and its best interests. And so, it felt kind of cold and calculated a little bit when when Mandy wasn't super excited about Toby's uh, excursions. Yeah, well, and, and I think that that kind of goes back to what I was saying about you know these people sort of becoming a statistic, right? If you don't have a a, a, a face to the or a face or a name to to the story because you know you know what mandy would say if you were to sort of confront her i would imagine is to be like you know homeless people die of exposure you know every day during winter probably in dc right and you know why does this one matter and the answer is you know like you said at the top right it's basically basically a coincidence that you know, Toby even shows up there, right? But that, you know, this is a, an example, right, of that, you know, you know, Toby now has a, has, has a reason to care and a reason to, 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 to get involved. And the question then sort of should be asked, right, is like, why do, why do we not care about all the other people, right? And that, you know, the example of, well, this just happens every day, like, not a great, you know, sort of excuse, right? Even if that is sort of, you know, yeah, that's obviously the truth, right? But that the, the the idea, right, of like, you know, the question shouldn't be, why do we care about Walter Huffnagel? It should be, why don't we care about all of the other, you know, homeless veterans that are dying? Absolutely. And, well, I, I'll take this opportunity to introduce not necessarily a new segment, but just as I continue to offer my input, uh, I often watch this show with my dad. And so... Uh, he he also sends me his notes, Ooh. and so uh, I I'd like to offer a, a, what I'm calling exposition uh, because my father's name is Joe, and one of the big services that he offers is that he was around. Uh, not to say that I wasn't alive, uh, but he was more sentient than I was at the time of a lot of these issues happening, and and uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later. But a lot of the things that they talk about in the show are based very directly on reality, things that actually happened in real life. And so the first little bit of exposition here is the fact that uh, this is another example of Aaron Sorkin kind of talking about a government that we hope will do the right thing. Uh, this speaks to a little bit of what I talked about last week, what we talked about with President Bartlett as this kind of dream candidate. But in reality, you know, this is something that was happening a lot around then. It's still happening today. And uh, I think President Bartlett represents in his end where he, he kind of like solemnly agrees to let Toby <laughs> go around and, and make this happen. And that represents even then a president that we wanted to exist. Uh, we didn't have a president like President Bartlett back then. We have never really had a president, in my opinion, that represents these values to such an extent. And so even when this show was coming out, uh, this represented kind of a dream candidate that, that isn't really possible yeah no no for, for for sure right that there's that there's a level of the fact that you know this is an issue you know obviously with with, with an issue that was you know very very personal to to, to the writer right that, that people felt like it is not being addressed enough right and so you know if you can sort of write you know in this fiction world you know it is right and i think that that is you know you know what again, you know, connects to the sort of, you know, tragedy of it all. Um, and yeah, I mean, and, and, and yeah, you know, that this was an issue, you know, you know, in the, 
you know, late 90s and early 2000s, right, that you had a whole generation of, of, of veterans that were, you know, aging, you know, into sort of relying on the system and that, you know, it was pushed, pushed to its limit, right, a lot of the veterans care things, right, you know, I mean, you know, specifically, I know that um, the VA hospital in, in, in Roseburg here in Oregon, you know, had to be like, totally remodeled. And I think 2001, so two years after the show came out, because it was woefully missized for the number of veterans that were sort of aging into needing all of this medical care. And so I think that, you know, you know, your dad, your dad is, you know, absolutely right to point out right about how, how much this is a, um, an issue that was, you know, front of mind when this episode was, was, was coming out because, you know, you know, you, you know, you know, the, the issue with the issue with, um, you know, veterans care, right. Is that it's not, you know, it, the, the demand for it is, 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 is not uniform, right. That obviously, you know, veterans, you know, there, there are more veterans when we have had a war, right. And, you know, especially, you know, when you look at the wars of, you know, the, the early to mid 1900s, right. Whether it's, you know, the world wars or Korea or Vietnam, you know, these wars that had a draft component to it, right. It's like that really jacks up the number of veterans. And so, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after these wars, the demand for veterans benefits spikes, right. And I think that that, you know, is a sort of under, appreciated or underrated, I guess, cost of war, right? Is that, you know, if you bring, you know, an extra large number of people, you know, whether it's, you know, all volunteers or, you know, you know, with the case of these wars, you know, you know, Korea, Vietnam, World War II, a combination of volunteers and, and, you know, conscripted, drafted people, not only do you have to, you know, pay and give them equipment and provide them, you know, food and shelter now, but that these are all people that are going to be, you know, entitled to veterans benefits later, right? Whether it's, um, you know, education benefits or healthcare or housing or whatever, right? And that that, you know, can put a strain on the system, you know, eat even, even years later. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I remember when I was at, um, when I was at, at, at college, I had a friend who worked in the, um, the, the veterans affairs office and they were just, you know, constantly, you know, way behind on processing any of this stuff. Right. Because, you know, it was, you know, 20 years after the start of the war in Afghanistan. And so there were, you know, just all these people that were coming in, you know, people that had served, you know, you know, you know, 20 years, 10 years, five years, whatever, were all, you know, coming and applying, applying for benefits in a way that the office was not really set up to, to, to handle. And I think that that, 
you know, shows again that, you know, we care a lot about soldiers when they're fighting, you know, and if they die, then we, you know, build a memorial to them. But that, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later is when they, they probably need these benefits the most. And if this system's not set up for that, it can really be a bad situation. Um, all right, so we can we can hop into um, you know what is I guess the the sort of B storyline here, right? Which is the continuation of the the issue with uh, Congressman Lillian Field that we were, we were introduced to before, where Lillian Field has access to he has somehow gotten uh, access to leo's records from from rehab and we learned in this episode actually that it's actually potentially even worse than we had first imagined is not only does you know does leo have an alcohol issue he has a drug issue but that he had this issue and it was an active issue and that he was in rehab while he was serving as the secretary of labor and you know you know you know sam sort of makes the point right that you know it's 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 concerning even to sam who knows leo and knows that leo's you know a good guy and that leo's not you know gonna sell safe speakers for drugs or whatever but that even to sam who is leo's friend it's concerning to him right that he was running the labor department while high on valley i mean that that is uh, you know, concern that I think puts a puts an even finer point on the potentially dangerous nature of this political information that Lillian Field has. Absolutely, I think that this is another great example of the writing skill of Sorkin, where you set up a character that you know and trust for nine episodes, and at episode ten, you reveal information that. Had you not been associated, have you not had you not learned all those things about this character, you might immediately distrust this person entirely. I think it'd be really easy to look at Leo and say, you know, with just that information, clearly you weren't making the best decisions for the country. I think it's probably a safe assumption. Uh, and therefore, you know, dislike would be the, the first instinct. But now you have this sense of kind of, you know, there's an internal stress on, I would imagine, most viewers where you're like, I like Leo. I enjoy the character Leo. So, you know, it's hard to, to rectify that with the fact that, again, if we didn't know any of these characters and I heard that the Secretary of Labor in real life was, you know, going through rehab, I would have some questions, admittedly, about the processes that were going on in the office at the time. Well, first, first point to make, um, we do not have a secretary of labor because, um, the Republicans in Congress won't stop, veto, uh, won't stop, uh, filibustering her. So we have an acting secretary of labor, but that's a, that's a completely separate story. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you make a, you make a good, a good point as it connects to, um, you know, the Leo character in general, right? I think that he's set up, you know, 
in this episode, obviously with the reveal that he was, you know, just dealing with, with, you know, multiple addictions while serving in government. We also see this with, um, the connection that we have, um, with Leo and his wife, right. And, 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 and the divorce storyline, right. Is that there's a lot that we see of Leo that makes you question his decision-making and his character. But I think that, like you said, it's Sorkin does a great job of writing this character that despite that, despite, you know, all of these things that on their own would make you concerned at the very least. Right. And, you know, you know, likely, you know, you know, likely even to the point of potentially disliking this character, but we still like and we still understand because we get the story from, from from his point of view and you recognize that, you know, he's not a bad guy, even if he's not, you know, perfect all of the time. Right. So, exactly. Like you're saying, if we did have a, la- a Secretary of Labor, uh, then... I, and then I then learned as a regular U.S. citizen that that Secretary of Labor was dealing with addictions. Again, it would have implications, but I, I'm, again, I just want to reiterate, I'm very impressed with the way that Sorkin was able to weave these two facts about this character together uh, in a way that makes us side with him, at least for the moment, or at least sympathize with him. Right, and I think, you know, you know again... And I think that they do a good job of setting this up with Sam, right? That he initially has this shock, and the shock, you know, wears off the more that the more that Sam Sam thinks about it in a way that I think connects to the fact that you know Sam is somebody who knows him very personally, and for that reason trusts and you know believes that he's not acting in a in, in a negative way, right? But that it's very obvious that you know, yeah, like you said, right, that, you know, a random, a random, you know, citizen is not going to necessarily have that same knowledge and understanding of the kind of person Leo is, and that makes the story that much more damaging, right, and so for that reason, um, Sam decides that, or sorry, Josh decides that he wants to sort of get a a preemptive strike. I think he says, you know, he comes into to Leo's office and says, like, can't tell you what I'm going to do. But I'm going to do a warning shot. And Leo goes, you got to tell me more than that. And like you said in the introduction, that that you know, Josh's decision is that he is going to go to to Lori, Sam, Sam's friend, who is a, a a sex worker, and see if that she would be willing to sort of give them some incriminating information on you know one of Lillian Field's political allies as a way to sort of you know build up the mutually assured destruction here right that you know it's not going to allow for Lillian Field to do this because it's going to you know take out you know one of his political allies and you know Leo's immediate response is is, is no right and I think that you know it's a it, you know, you know, again, highlights, I think, an essential part of of Leo's character, which is why, you know, where we sort of are more prone to 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 trust him and to believe that he's a good guy. Right. Is that he doesn't want his issues to distract from 
from the president, right? That he's willing to, you know, we'll see this later in the, in the bookstore, right? That he's willing to, to resign because he doesn't want to be a distraction from, you know, the other priorities the administration has, right? Whether it's the Mendoza confirmation or, you know, their push for legislation once Congress is back or, or any of these things, right? That Leo wants cares more about those things than he does about his own reputation, about his own job. And I think that that is highlighted by the fact that Leo says like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sacrifice my, my morals. I'm not going to sacrifice my judgment to, you know, save my, save my, save my skin. Right. I, I, I don't want you to do this. And, you know, he says, you know, it's not what we do. Right. It's like, I'd much rather resign to avoid the, issue then you know do something underhanded to you know save the day right and again this this kind of confirms what we've been learning about leo for the last nine episodes in that he is a recovering alcoholic he is a recovering addict he is someone that generally speaking we can trust with a lot of these things and Similarly, I, I, again, I think that this is a great storyline of showing and not telling. Uh, we see Leo, you know, we, we're shown Leo being trustworthy, so we tend to trust him. And on the other hand, the scene where they go and visit Lori is one of the many scenes in this series where you just want to close your eyes and run away. I think that uh, one of my bigger criticisms of the early series is their treatment of sex workers. I think that they do it in a really strange way, particularly the character of Sam, and in this episode, the character Josh. It's just tough to see these characters be so weird about it, and obviously this is another marker of the fact that this all happened 20-plus years ago, but it's definitely indicative of the times. And to, to round it out, right, the other example of showing not telling is that, though I have criticisms of it, the fact that Josh and Sam go to Lori's house and not only make absolute fools of themselves, but essentially attack Lori uh, and, and say, like, you know, come on, I'm sure you'll give us a name so that we can use it for our political gain. They do it in the end because they care so much about Leo and because they trust him so much. And at one point, you know, I think Josh or or I don't remember who said, I think it was Donna that said it, right? John is like, if any of us were under attack, Leo would be the first one to come to our defense and, and to protect us. And so clearly, you know, what they're doing is wrong and stupid, but they're doing it for, I guess, the right reasons, whether that shores up the fact that they, you know, made another major hit against Sam's relationship with Lori, uh, whether that's worth it, that's... Uh, yet to be seen yeah no i think that that you know you know like, like you said right is that you know so so so, so josh leaves and he's not going to do it and donna sort of you know you know t t talks him into it like you said that she says you know if this was any of us you know leo would be you know breaking every rule and you know knocking down the door and so that sort of convinces convinces josh to 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 to, to, to go along with it and you know when when the scene comes comes back at the end that you know leo sort of you know as as mad as he is 
with the whole situation, right? It ends with him saying, like, I know why you did this. And, like, you know, he doesn't say thank you, right? But that's sort of the implication, right? It's like, thank you for at least attempting this, right? Even if, you know, ultimately, like, I told you not to do this and it was the wrong thing to do. Like, I'm touched by the fact that you care enough about me to to do this, right? And I think that that, again, you know, back to, I think, you know, one of the two themes that we've really discovered of, of this first season is the the family and the familial relationships, right, that these characters have with each other. We touched a little bit earlier, right, that there is, you know, sort of a, you know, stand-in mother, stand-in son relationship with Miss Lanningham and, 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 and Charlie. And, you know, really, you know, we'll see, you know, even more throughout this series, right, the father-son relationship between Leo and Josh. And this is an example of that, right? You know, I think that, you know, you know, you see sometimes, right, you know, where the kid comes home from school and they got in a fight and the parent has to say, like, don't fight, but, you know, they, 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 you know, you know, fought, fought for a good reason, right? You know, you know, I can, you know, to take an example from my life, right, where I got into a, to a, to, 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 to a fight in middle school, you know, because somebody was, was, was being misogynistic to my friend, right? And the conversation that I had with my mom after that, where, you know, she asked to say, like, you know, don't fight people, like, fighting is bad, like, but also, like, you know, I'm proud that you, you know, stood up for somebody, right? And I think that that is the example you get here, right? That I think really, you know, reminded me of that, right? Of, of, of sort of a, a kid who does the wrong thing because they're trying to do the right thing or because they have pure intentions, right? And the, and the way that, that Leo is, is touched by that, even as he is mad and frustrated at what they did. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's, I think that that's kind of the whole, I don't know, the whole episode is about intentions, really, when we look at Toby, when we look at, uh, yeah, all, all three plots have to do with intention. Toby, uh, you know, intended to do good, ended up using the president's name in somewhat of a nefarious way, but he intended well and it all works out. In this plot, Josh and Sam intend well, they're trying to protect Leo, and then of course the much more intense interpretation of intentions i suppose is the c plot when we talk about hate crimes uh and and how the intention behind a crime can uh paint that crime in a different light so that seems to be almost a broader theme of the episode as a whole no i absolutely right i think it ties into what we've talked about the overall theme of the the entire first season right about you know perception versus reality and i think that you know intentions tie into you know, both perception and reality, right? You know, in, in this in this scene, you know, where we have, you know, Josh acting in a way that is, you know, incredibly not good, right? But that, you know, you know, you know that it that it's you know forgiven by by Leo because because of of, of the perception, right? Of like this is him, you know, fighting for fighting for me, right, you know, and, and also you saw, you know, in the scene with Lori, right, that, you know, the way that, the way that Lori perceives Josh's comments 
you know, make that situation go even worse than it could have, right? Because, you know, the way that people perceive these things, the way that these issues are, are, are viewed as, you know, oftentimes the most important or the most, you know, I don't know, whatever, the, the most, has the most impact on, on, on other people, right? And I think that, you know, what you see in this episode, you know, I think that, you know, you know, what we have with, with the Leo plot is very good in the sense of you see somebody who wants to do something good and does something good, right? And I think that, that it's it's balanced out or it's, you know, contrasted with the idea that Josh and, and ultimately Sam, but, you know, mostly Josh, I feel like he's sort of the one that carries the storyline. He so desperately wants to do something good but, like, that doesn't really matter, right? Like, just because you want to be a good person doesn't always make you a good person, right? And I think that that is a important, you know, lesson to, to, to learn, right? Is that you can have the world's best intentions, but, like, that doesn't mean that you're going to always do good and that, you know, actions matter oftentimes more, more than intentions, right? And that, you know, you know... We see that both, you know, from the good side with Toby and the bad side with Josh in this one episode. Absolutely. Uh, again, the the masterful uh, writing of this show reveals these these parallels and these opposites, and I'm I'm consistently impressed with their abilities. Yeah, um, yeah. Then, like you said, I think it's time that we that we can we can hop into to to the C plot here, which is. Um, like you said, that um, Lowell Lydell, uh, who was a, a high school senior uh, from, I believe, Minnesota, um, you know, he he is he is a gay man who uh, ends up being um, beaten beaten to death in what is pretty obviously a hate crime, right? And you know th that that is obviously something that you know is a sort of massive, massive political debate, right? You know, and I, I, you know, I don't know if you, if your dad has any notes on this, right? But like, this was an issue that was 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 a real issue in the, in 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 in, it. and this was this was something that was a real issue in the late '90s, right? A, a real political issue that had quite a bit of salience. Absolutely, and uh, my dad does talk a lot about that. Uh, there was a big incident. Uh, with a man named Matthew Shepard. Yes. And basically, very similar situation. Conservative pundits uh, would often say stuff like, it's awful, but, you know, that was kind of the big, that was the rhetoric against this being a hate crime. Like, this isn't a hate, this is awful, this is terrible, but it's not a hate crime. Uh, this is in the era of don't ask, don't tell, and the efforts, you know, for the Defense of Marriage Act from the Repu Republicans. Uh, so there are a lot of things happening here uh, that kind of, stew into an issue like this. And it's not surprising when you look back at this storm of information that a show like The West Wing would include a plot along these lines. Uh, the FBI, you know, when we look in, into the more of the specifics in the Matthew Shepard case, uh, the FBI made Matthew's father wear a bulletproof vest for the funeral. There were SWAT teams posted around it to secure the ceremony. You know, all these things are happening. This is such an intense and public event uh, that is resulting from 
right? Very similar situation to what we see in the show. And in the end, and we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens with the Lowell case in the show. But in the end, the judge of the Matthew Shepard trial dismissed the gay panic defense. Uh, and that was like a really big step into kind of, you know, talking about hate crimes and talking about how we talk about these these uh, these crimes, particularly when we talk about people in the queer community. And for those, of course, I don't, I don't know your background. For those that don't know, the gay panic defense is about essentially, you know, if a, if a heterosexual person attacks a, a homosexual person, oftentimes there was a, a defense that could be brought forward that, like, it was because of unwanted advances, things like that. Of course, we know now, or we knew then, of course, that, uh, you know, you can't kill a, you can't kill another person just because they made unwanted advances towards you, uh, barring certain extreme circumstances. So why this was a defense, particularly for the, you know, death of homosexual people is a completely different topic. But basically, uh, yeah, no, these are all notes that my dad put down. The Matthew Shepard case was massive. It was on people's minds when this episode came out. And it's very obvious that uh, the the waves that we're seeing, the ripples that we're seeing in the show are a product of the fact that this is a, 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 a massive thing that was happening. Yeah, yeah. So so, so like, like you said, the, the Matthew Shepard um, murder was about 18 months before this episode came out, right? So probably, you know... You know, like you said, all these things around the funeral were top of mind when this episode was was, was being written, almost certainly, right? And, um, you know, this episode comes out uh, two and a half months before the play The Laramie Project comes out, which is um, the play about um, about about Matthew Shepard and, 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 and his death. And, you know, this the, the sort of highlights this, right? And so, you know, you know, all around this time, right, you know, you know, you know hate crimes were... A major a major political issue and um and and yeah you know i mean i mean and i not to say that they're actually not not still a major political issue right um you know you know you know like you said um you know you know you know that, that his, his parents dennis and judy um you know you know have been you know outspoken on this you know you know still still to this day right you know you know you know they both um they both spoke at the Democratic National Convention, you know, just four years ago in 2020, right? Like, this is still an issue that is largely, you know, seen as seen as, as, as unresolved, right? And you can look at, you know, the, the, the you know, rates of, of death amongst, you know, queer, queer Americans is, you know, significantly higher than it is, um, you know, amongst, amongst straight Americans. And I think that that is, you know, you know, something that, you know, unfortunately you know you know you know you know you know yes it sort of dates the episode in the you know in 99 for you know how deeply connected this is to the the shepherd case but you know sadly this is not something that this is sadly this is something that is still you know you know an ongoing issue right and i think that you know i think this episode does a good job of sort of highlighting the 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 complexities of of you know dealing with hate crimes and and how they're how they're dealt with from a a legal perspective right because again i think it's you know very easy to to you know if you're a good person to understand the you know moral case for hate crimes legislation but the sort of legal case is you know 
a bit a bit more complicated, right? I think we'll get into you know more more on this show with 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 Lowell Lydell case, right? Is that the issues that exist are not just the the hate crimes legislation, but also just the idea like you brought up, you know, there's don't ask, don't tell. There is, you know, all of these other societal issues that make life that much harder to be a to be a gay person in the United States and that, you know, it can be seen, especially in the nineties, right, that progress is not being made on these issues, right? And that, you know, the death is just another highlighted example of that, right? You know, similar to how we saw with the with the veterans in this episode, right, that, you know, there's a perception that these issues are not being touched on and that the only way that they get to sort of the president's desk is because of a massive tragedy, right? I think that, you know, you know, you know, CJ brings up in her briefing where they said, you know, hey, we want you to sort of, you know, start the ball rolling on this. And, you know, she says, you know, the best time to think about hate crimes legislation was, you know, yesterday before her, you know, Lil Lydell was, was attacked, right? And that, you know, that's sort of the example on a lot of these issues, right? That it takes a tragedy to see legislation get passed to deal with these issues, even though anybody in the queer community could have told, could have told the white house a week ago, like this is an issue, right. But that nobody was talking about it until an 18 year old, you know, man dies. Right. And we've seen that happen time and time again, where there are preventable tragedies that legislation just doesn't have the, foothold to you know come forward about and i don't know it, it this is like the darkest side of how the sausage get, gets made and the fact that in these like larger broader political you know games of tug of war these you know terrible and inexcusable tragedies are the things that end up pushing things over the line uh and and produce uh tactile you know change but at the end of the day, that's not going to bring back the people whose death often, uh, you know, creates the change that could have saved them. Right. And I think, you know, you know, you see this with, you know, whether it is, you know, you, you know, the shepherds when federal hate legislation was signed in real life in, 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 in the year 2000 um, or, you know, with, you know, the family of George Floyd after the, you know, George Floyd Policing Reform Act was signed, I think, in 2021 that, you know, there's a big deal that the family of these victims are invited to, you know, White House signings and they, you know, get a get a pen from the president and whatever, right? But it's like, that's not at all a good or a, you know, substitute for the family members that they, that they lost, right? And that that, you know, again, I mean, I, I, mean, I think that, you know, think about it just from my perspective, right? That if you know, somebody who I, who I loved, who was a part of my life, you know, died in a horrendous way. I don't know if I'd want to, you know, you know, again, as happy as I would be to see, you know, a law passed, it would maybe hopefully prevent or, you know, mitigate the chance of happening to somebody else. I don't know if I'd want to go, you know, to a White House ceremony for that, right? And I think that that, again, you know, to, to sort of tie all these storylines together, right, that that is, 
what you see with somebody like Mrs. Lanningham or like like Charlie, right? That the reason that they come to work despite the fact that they were pretty severely let down by their government, right? Whether it's, you know, Mrs. Lanningham's kids dying on Christmas Eve halfway around the world or, you know, Charlie's mother dying because, you know, we can't, you know, regulate guns in this country. But that they're saying, well, I don't want that to happen to anybody else, so I'm going to go to work, right? And I think that that's what you see, you know, what, you know, and I think, you know, what, what, what we see in real life with, you know, with Matthew Shepard's parents, right? That they've spent the last, you know, 26 years of their lives really fighting for LGBT rights in this country, you know, as a way to say, like, this happened to our son. I don't wish that on anybody, right? It can happen to anybody else. I think that that is, you know, really the tragedy of this, right, is that they're, they're sort of, somebody needs to, you know, almost sacrifice themselves for justice to happen, right? And that that is an unspeakable tragedy, but that is, like you said, the, the dark side of the, of the sausage getting made here. Right. And to connect back to a thing that you said earlier, the, the sacrifice isn't necessarily the person that dies in a traumatic and terrible way. That uh, obviously, I, I think that, you know, again, we're talking about intentions that lacks the intention of being a sacrifice. But I, I agree that I think that Matthew Shepard's parents, in a way, are sacrificing their, you know, time. They're sacrificing the rest of their lives to fight for this because it is a sign of complete and total strength that you can turn around after losing a family member and fight for the rights of the people that could be just like you were it not for the fight that you're that you're pushing and so really that's the sacrifice that i take out of this is that the families or or miss landingham or charlie these are the people that are you know putting time and and energy and 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 large amounts of their life forward so that again they they don't have to be the first in a series of people hopefully in in, in the best case scenario they're the last people that might have to deal with uh you know the the tragedies that they went through so again there there is a sacrifice there absolutely uh it almost just feels like it's it's not the person that dies yeah no i mean it's it's you know obviously there's 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 them dying right and that the the the, the intention right if you know if something bad happens a tragedy happens in in your life right the intention to say i am going to spend the rest of my life you know, working to make sure that um, this this doesn't happen to to you know anybody else, right? And you know, again, again, right? The, the, the fact that you know Dennis and Judy Shepard have spent you know the last twenty five years of their lives working in in, in advocacy, right? You know that that they were there when you know hate crimes legislation was was updated to include sexual orientation, you know. You know, both in the process of you know lobbying Congress and then ultimately being able to be at the at the signing ceremony, which was I, I was I was incorrect. It was it was it was all the way to all the way until two thousand and nine for you know in real life for for you know the hate crime legislation to be updated, right? And so that's you know was eleven years that they spent before any positive came out of their advocacy, right? And the fact that you know, you, you don't get disheartened by that. You don't get, you know, whatever, right. That, you know, that shows really, I think a strength of character that is, is, is important. Um, 
you know, and that's how these issues get taken care of, right? Because you can't guarantee that anybody else is going to care about what you care about, right? And so if you care about something, the way you guarantee it gets done is by doing it yourself, right? You know, um, one of my favorite lines in, in all the West Wing that we'll 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 get to to in, in the season finale here, but you know they talk about decisions are made by those who show up, and I think that that's such a powerful message to have, right? Is that you know if you care about something, the easiest way to guarantee that it gets taken care of is by you being the one who does it right exactly no i i I think that it's again it's strength it's there's a certain power that comes behind just being present and that's what this episode seems to really all be about is again i keep changing what i think the episode's all about (laughs) but intention and and being present are two of the big moments here that Again, it's Christmas and and intention and and being present are pretty much what it's all about, right? So, again, we're seeing these these themes woven together in a very powerful way, in a very impressive way. Right. And and, and again, I think that, you know, it's incredible writing, right? The way that all of these storylines find their ways to sort of be, be connected, right? That, you know, you can connect what Miss Lanningham does in this episode to the hate crime realization, even though, you know, I don't think think they're ever in any of the same scenes, right? They're not discussing hate crimes ever when Miss Lanningham is there, but the parallels are still there, right? Between this is somebody who has dedicated her life to service as a result of a tragedy in the same way that, you know, the parents of, of Lil Lydell, you know, have, have the opportunity to, um, but yeah, back, back, back to, back to into the episode, um, right. You, you point out that, um, you know, the, the, the president, um, gets the, the, the news of Lola Idell's death in what is a, a, a very impactful scene, right? So they're having a, um, a Christmas Eve, Eve, little celebration at the white house, uh, part of which features, I don't know, you know, roughly 15 elementary school kids that are, have, you know, somehow won the opportunity to uh, come and ask the president a question. And it's, you know, really, a, really a, a, a great scene before Charlie comes in, right, of the president, you know, sort of hamming it up with the kids and, you know, you know, get, getting them to, you know, laugh and have a good time. And then, you know, Charlie comes in to, to deliver the news that Lowell Idell has died. And you see the one of the major difficulties of the presidency, right, is, is that the, the opportunity comes that you have to really, I hate this word so much, you have to compartmentalize all of these issues, right, because, you know, you might deal with, you know, an unspeakable tragedy one minute and literally, you know, 10 seconds later, right, you've got to go be, you know, fun-loving president who's, you know, dealing with kids in front of the press, right? And I think that that is such a powerful scene, the way that the president, you know, I think, you know, Martin Sheen, obviously an an incredible, incredible actor. And this just, you know, I think one of the best acted scenes, 
so far in in the series here of him, you know, going from, you know, deeply, deeply sad and deeply shocked, you know, back to, you know, fun loving, joking around, you know, with the kids. You there, Mason? Sorry, I clicked my mute button oh. at the wrong time. Oh, don't do that. Um, I completely agree. I think that this is an incredibly acted scene. It's an incredibly poignant scene. It's a magical scene, really, because of the layers that are that, that exist in this moment. The fact that Charlie is the one that tells the president uh, that that uh, Lowell Lydell has passed away is so intense because in that moment, the president you know, is looking at Charlie, not only is Charlie around the same age as Lowell Lydell, um, but Charlie also, I'm I'm interpreting, represents a stand-in for the president's daughter in the same way, where, where the president is looking at this person, whoever they are, that's the same age as someone who's just died because of uh, this egregious crime. And his children are the same age. He's standing in a room full of children that are all, you know, growing up in a world where something like this could happen. And so that one moment is so intense and so uh, heartbreaking to see. But I also think that, to, to your note earlier, this scene really represents, like I was saying, like, like uh, my dad said earlier in some of his things, right, uh, that not only is this kind of what the government, not only is this episode talking about what the government should be like, but really what the president, the role of the president should encapsulate. One of the big reasons that the presidency isn't an un, unlimited office, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is because this is a deeply, deeply stressful job. It's it's probably, you know, up there on the most stressful job in the world, right? I think it's often char characterized as such. And it's because you have to take on it's, it's a mantle. It's not just an office. It's a mantle that weighs on you every single day because you're taking in all this information. You have to make decisions around it, but you have to make decisions that aren't just knee-jerk. We, we saw a lot of knee-jerk President Bartlett early in the series, but you have to make decisions that are going to uh, result in the most possible good for you, for the people that you love, uh, for the people that you don't love, uh, and for everyone in the country. And this is exactly one of those moments where um, you know, he he has to take in this information, he has to compartmentalize it, like you said, and he has to go out there and continue making jokes to children that are, you know, singing for him in the White House. So, again, it, it shows so much of the the breadth of this position and and the breadth of this show. Yeah, no, I, 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 absolutely right. And again, I think that, you know, you, you, you know it, it definitely ties into the fact, right, that, you know, what we've been talking about with the, the you know public perception and that being one of the most important things in the White House has sort of been the overarching theme of the season. We don't touch on that a lot in this episode, but I think this scene is a great example of that, right? That, you know, you know, the president can't appear to be frazzled. The president can't appear to be uncomfortable, right? Even though he, you know, oftentimes is, right? That he receives a lot of information which is not good, right? But that instead of instead of you know being allowing that to impact, or he needs to go out there, he needs to you know put put on a brave face for the government, right? You know, partly because 
you know, again, you know, his, his words and his actions, you know, move the, move the stock market, right. And affect the world. Right. And so he can't appear to be panicked and whatever. Right. And also the fact that, you know, recognizing that for these kids, this is going to be one of the, you know, biggest moments of their life. Right. And so the fact that he's got to go out there and make it a positive experience for them. Right. Even obviously, you know, much, much more minor compared to all these other things. Right. But that, you know, again, like you said, when you, you know, hear about, you know, a child dying, right, and then, you know, the fact that you say, well, now I got to put in this effort, you know, to sort of bring some joy to these children's lives, right, and to give them a story that they'll, you know, hopefully be able to tell for the rest of their lives, right, but that, you know, then that also ties into, like, what can we do to, you know, make sure these kids live long lives, right, whether that is, you know, you know, gun control or hate crime legislation or, or, or any of these things, right, is that, you know, you know, again, the, the, I, I think, you know, like, it's a very intentional that you see the setup with these, with these being, you know, kids there, right, is that, you know, the president wants to bring as much joy to these kids, but also recognize that there's work to be done to make sure that all of these kids, you know, grow up to, to, to live long lives and to be able to, you know, tell their grandkids about, when I met the president of the White House, right? You know, they can't do that if they're, if kids are dying, right? I completely agree. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's an intense, it's a heavy scene. It has a lot of, you know, far-reaching implications. And we see it time and time again, right? The president's every minute action is monitored. Uh, the whole West Wing is under the same microscope. I think it was when... Um, they, in the episode, what is it, three votes down, uh, where votes. they're walking, five votes down, when they're walking down the hallway in the very beginning. I think that's the one with the long shot in yes. the opening scene. Yes. In my, yes. And, and they're walking down the hallway, and, and you know, Josh tells CJ, don't freak out, but this is what's happening. And it's because there's press everywhere, and if the White House staffers are walking down the hallway, and they all look really mad and frustrated and upset, well people are going to notice and that's going to have far-reaching implications that's going to you know that's going to impact the news cycle it's going to impact everything uh, and then even in this episode we have an example where you know the president is so assured that he can go out and he can shop for books uh with impunity and, and secretly but the first thing that danny says in this episode is oh the president's going out you know sneaking out is his unmarked suvs out back like everything is monitored and Everybody knows pretty much exactly what's going on with the president, at least in his public capacity. And that is exactly why the president's public capacity has to be uh, completely, I don't know, pure and and unreadable. Uh, because otherwise, everyone's going to know everything that you don't want them to know. Right, yeah. It's, it's you know, very hard to very hard to keep a secret in, in Washington, right? And that, you know, yeah, I, I think the, 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 the Danny line there is, is very, very evident of that. Um, all right, we can hop into the the D storyline here, like you mentioned. Um, the president wants to go uh, shopping for for rare books. Um, also, not great that the president is doing his Christmas shopping on the twenty third. I gotta say, you know, <laughs> you'd expect you'd expect a guy as organized as President Bartlett to have his shopping, you know, done. Not, you know. Two days before, but I guess you know maybe he's maybe he's been been too too busy you know with with all of his uh, you know presidenting. But um, 
I, I, I did like the line here where um, the president said he's going to the store called Rare Books. Uh, you know, what do you think they sell there? And, you know, you know, J Josh making the joke that, you know, he thinks that they sell fishing tackle there. Um, but again, I think that, the, 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 you know, there's, there's not a lot of meat on this, but I think the meat that is there, right, is back to the, the, the season one theme, right, is that Mandy desperately wants the president to take at least a, you know, photographer, right, to, to, to the bookstore because it's like a fun humanizing moment for the president, right, a guy who, you know, has a passion and is going to go, you know, spend an hour out of his day to, you know, achieve something that he loves, right, and that, you know, Mandy's frustration, the president doesn't want to have that, right, and it's, you know, he wants to have a little bit of privacy in his day, right? And I think that that, again, you know, you know, connects to the potential differences in whether or not, um, you know, what the role of the president is, right? You know, and I, 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 I recently read um, the the book, um, it's like a, a photo book that I, I I bought my mom for for Christmas that is. Uh, a, a book written by uh, Obama's White House photographer and you know it's, it's a collection of all of all these photos and then um, features you know sort of brief descriptions or stories connecting to a bunch of the photos and one of the things they talk about specifically there right is that you know Obama was I think similar to, to, to Bartlett here a guy who was very hesitant to allow the photographer to be in uh, sort of his private moments, right? Whether it was him, you know, being with his kids or him playing basketball or whatever, right? These things that Obama wanted, they had to sort of push him to do that because these human moments are a way that people can connect with the president, right? And, you know, back to sort of the old adage of, you know, a president you want to have a beer with or whatever, right? That like seeing somebody engaging in their hobbies is a way that it becomes easy to see them more as a human right and that that's where the frustration that exists you know with mandy here right she's like dude like just like let somebody take a picture of you engaging in your hobby right and you know that'll be good press for you know at least a couple of days right especially because it seems pretty clear that they're in something of a media lull Especially with Christmas around the bend, you know, there there's going to be the photo ops of the president going to see the choirs and all the events that are happening in the White House. But these are things that happen every single year. Those aren't the things that are going to be really thrilling or really, you know, win any token of favor for the White House. And so Mandy is, you know, again, Mandy's doing her job. She's She is doing exactly what she was hired to do. Uh, but we see her essentially, you know unsuccessful throughout the episode where by the end she's just like can i just tell them that you did it like can i just let people know that this happened in the first place and even to that she's shirked it, it's very clear that this is something that the president holds very dear to himself uh and and it's something that he values you know the the privacy of even more yeah no and again they, it, it's you know connects back to what we talked a little bit about you know with the scene where with the, with the kids and the you know learning about lolile's death that you know the president is you know sort of incapable of being 
just a guy, right? That everything he does is an action, right? Even inaction, right? Here is is action, right? That if you know, you know, the next week or in the new year, if there's you know massive bad press or there's a story that leaks out of the president is you know acting aloof or whatever, right? It's like okay, well, you know what he could have done here, you know, maybe could have you know changed the public perception of that or could have mitigated that that story right but that um that doesn't happen because the president makes his decision here right and i think that it you know you know shows i mean i, I mean a, a fun fact that you know is not, not not really a fun fact but it's i'm going to say it anyways um that you know the, the federal government has 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 a law called called the hatch act and it um prohibits federal employees from acting in a in a political sense in an official capacity right so you know you are allowed to you know act you know you're allowed to campaign you're allowed to whatever as a as a private citizen right but not as a as a in your role as, as a public employee um you know so it's like if you're you know in the military right you know you can't publicly campaign in uniform right you can't campaign when you're being paid you know whatever and this this law it's, it's interesting it applies to every federal employee except for the president and the vice president because they made the distinction that there is no time it is impossible for the president to do anything while they are president not acting in an official capacity as president which is like a fascinating thing to sort of think about right that like legally right that you know the, the legal scholars of the country have determined that everything the president does is in an official capacity as the president right and so even though he's trying to just go to the bookstore right it's like it's still the president going to the bookstore right and you know you can sort of see the evidence of this right that the way they get there is that the store manager has to clear out the store and secret service is in you know 10 minutes before and whatever right that it's like you can't even go book shopping without you know making the federal case literally right and i think that that is, is is an interesting perspective that i think connects to all of the things that we'll see with the role of the president um all right and then um the um the e storyline i guess here um is sort of the continuation from from uh from, from the previous episode that we get um, a, a little bit more of a dive into the uh, Danny and and CJ relationship here, right? Is that CJ is, you know, really conflicted about the the hate crimes legislation because she is, I think, of the people in the White House, the most convinced by the need to adopt hate crimes legislation and to to to, to, to and to do it soon, and, you know, that there is definitely some pushback, right? I think we see with with Leo, we see with Sam, that they're saying, you know, hey, you know, maybe maybe take your foot off, off the gas a little bit. You know, we're not ready to sort of make a full-throated dive into there. And that, you know, frustrates, and I think also con con confuses CJ, right? And so, you know, she ultimately decides that she will take Danny up on his offer to, to, to have dinner with him, to sort of have a discussion, right? You know, again, similar to, 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 to Mallory, right? She is 
insistent uh, to make sure that it is not going to be categorized as a date, but again, similar to the Mallory and Sam of it all, that implication is maybe not, you know, 100% truthful, uh, and, you know, they ultimately end up agreeing to, 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 to get dinner, and I think, you know, we only really get two scenes of them in this whole episode, but I think that it does a great job of, of, of taking what we saw in episode nine and moving it forward to, you know, really the next step. Right. This is like a, this is a logical continuation of what we've seen from them before. These are two very, you know, I already said logical, but these are two very logical people and they are both aware of the risks that a relationship between the two of them would result in. And so uh, I, it seems that, you know, admittedly in this plotline, CJ's a little bit more logical than Danny because when, you know, they're joking early on about how they have lists of reasons why they should or should not date, CJ goes and prints out or at least types up a literal list of reasons why they should not date, uh, and it, it is revealed, of course, that Danny did never, never had such a list, uh, and was kind of, you know, uh, you know, he has a mental list, right? But it's it's a cute episode. I agree that it it pushes things forward. It's it's the next, you know, it's the next step here, and and we get to see a little bit more of them going back and forth. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I I do also. I really relate to CJ in this episode as somebody who loves to make lists and loves to make, you know, rankings and stuff. Just the way that she's, you know, so caught off guard by the fact that Danny was just joking about making a list that, you know, you know, she actually makes this list and Danny's like, hey, what did you do? You, you, you actually made a list? And he's like, well, like, did you make a list? And he was like, oh yeah, I got a mental list, right? You know, then it's like, obviously he did not, <laughs> did not actually make this list, right? And I think that, you know, you know, I, I am often the CJ in this situation, right, where, where I am, you know, eager to, 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 to dive in and to, to make lists about things, you know, oftentimes in the confusion of, of, of the people around me. Right. Um, so yeah, I, th I think, I think a great scene. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a good way to, I think, you know, move this, move the story forward in a way that, you know, again, we get like two scenes with them, but, they're they're really impactful well done well done scenes um that i think really really set up the relationship going forward you know we, we get danny's christmas gift to cj which is some 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 goldfish food for for the wonderful goldfish gail uh who was you know of course introduced in the last episode and i think it just sets up um you know really what the future of that relationship is going to be right that even though they both know it's a bad idea. Ultimately, it does not change the fact that it's moving forward, right? You know, you know whether or not it's a good idea, or even you know the fact that we know and CJ at least knows. And again, I think we can imagine that Danny is Danny is not stupid, right? Danny knows it's a bad idea, but despite the fact that everybody knows it's a bad idea, that's not stopping it from happening, right? And so, you know. You get a little bit of the, you know, you know, car crash, right? You, you, you can't look away, right? You know, you know, we had, 
you know, a very cringe scene earlier here with, you know, with, with Josh and Sam going to see, going to see Lori. And I think that, you know, we're setting up for some, you know, scenes that are potentially going to be a little bit cringy going forward with, um, with CJ and, and, and Danny, but like, that's almost, you know, you can't look away because, you know, you're so intrigued by what's going to happen. Right. It's, it's awkward. It's strange. It's unethical. (laughs) You know, these are all reasons why probably shouldn't be happening, but at the end of the day, uh, it's also cute. It's, it's a fun relationship. And, uh, I think they're both smart, witty people and, and they're smart, witty people together. And, you know, come what may, they're interested in each other. And yeah, the interesting thing is that I I think the more interesting thing that speaks to the the familiarity of the White House West Wing is that there are other people that know what's happening. Particularly, we see Josh, you know, kind of egging it on a couple episodes ago when he tells Danny to get her a fish. Uh, And... So seemingly he's aware of the situation. It's probably pretty clear that other people are too. Uh, but at the same time, CJ hasn't really gone to anyone and asked for advice or, or asked maybe what she should do about this, if she should pursue it, uh, perhaps most obviously because she knows that the answer will be don't do it. It's not a good idea. Uh, but regardless of that, you know, again, while it's happening, it's a fun little, it's a fun little adventure for them. Yeah, and, and I would also like to point out that um, something that I just thought of as you as as you mentioned it here um, that you know CJ being the only the only woman uh, in in the main cast you know I think that that plays a role right in her sort of isolation there right is that you saw you know instantly you know when Sam had a situation with Lori he goes to Josh right and they have this friendship that. You know, it seems like CJ is a little bit, you know, sort of isolated by the fact that she is, you know, the only woman in, in this high position of power, right? That she doesn't, it appears she does not necessarily feel comfortable having these relationship conversations with, you know, these people who, even though, yes, obviously, obviously they're friends, obviously they are very close, right? But I think that there's a, definitely a different level of familiarity and comfort with these difficult conversations that, you know, she has with Sam and Josh versus what Sam and Josh have with each other. And I think that that is, you know, connected, I think, at least in part by her being a, a woman in a, you know, be, I think that's at least in part with her sort of being a woman in a man's world, I think. Right. Absolutely. And again, I, I, I'm always happy to revisit the idea that Josh and Sam and CJ are kind of these new, these, you know, they're just cutting their teeth on some of this stuff and they're just entering this world together. Uh, And so we don't have that many people in this little circle of theirs to really talk to. Everyone else has either lower security details or higher security detail than them. and, And therefore it's tough to find someone that you can really talk to. Uh, and if we, you know, obviously there's, there is a value to talking to people of your own gender who share experiences, anything like that. And so we've seen CJ talk to really one of the only other, you know, or, or, or the two other female characters that, that inhabit lower roles in the, in the TV show, 
uh, that being Mandy and uh, Dr. Bartlett, right? Where we, we do have these other women that CJ can go to. But in reality, uh, you know, uh, the First Lady inhabits kind of a, a higher, not even kind of, but certainly a higher role and is also an older woman and all the advice that she gets from uh, that she gives CJ is kind of like fun, lighthearted, you know, trying to set her up with a doctor at the party. And then Mandy, the other woman that CJ kind of talks to and goes to for advice, is seen seemingly, if, if we're to extrapolate from what she talks to her about, as a professional, as a colleague, right? Uh, she goes to, to Mandy to talk about the situation with Danny, but not the situation romantically, purely the situation professionally of, of how can we get him to drop this story, right? And so, again, this is an example of, like, she doesn't, like you're saying, she doesn't have people to go to and talk to about these things uh, that, that share her experiences. Uh, she has uh, the, the, you know, she, her, her closest peers are men who march around the office shouting, who to man, yeah. right? That's not exactly the person that you want to go to to talk about your love life with uh, with Danny Kincannon. Well, and I think, you know, you know, one other thing to sort of put a finer point on that, you know, you know, Mandy is potentially her peer. But again, like very clearly, all of the people in the rest of this staff are all on, you know, Josh's side of their, you know, breakup and the issues there right and so it's like you know even the person who in theory is sort of the closest to her right it's like there's a personal issue there that would make it awkward right if you you know you know go to your you know friends ex for relationship advice right like you know i gotta think that would be that would be you know quite an awkward scenario you know all right matthew in from the editing room here just to say that uh, we lost about maybe two minutes of, of the recording here uh, just basically my computer ran out of space and I stopped recording um, so sorry you're just gonna miss maybe a couple minutes not a whole lot here but we are back in here to we did discover the issues so we're back in here before uh, it's time to find out who won the episode and kind of wrap things up uh, sorry about that um, hopefully we will not have this problem in the future if I can find all of my uh, external hard drives. But anyways, back to the show. All right. Well, I think with that, it is time to uh, get to the, the all-important uh, who won the episode here. And um, I think, at least for me, this was a pretty easy, easy one here. You know, I think that there's, you know not a lot of, of of great results here but i think you know what we do end up here with is a pretty solid win for 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 toby i think he gets his he gets his first um win here you know i just think the fact that he you know shows up in a situation where he is um you know pulled into a situation that he's not expecting to find himself in on, on christmas eve eve and ultimately he ends up, you know, doing a lot of positive. And I think, you know, like we said earlier, that it really sort of changes his outlook on what his role as a member of the government is, right? You know, that he hopes that his actions will encourage people to take more advantage of the veteran system, 
people to understand the struggles that veterans are going through. And so I think that it's a a pretty cl- a pretty clear cut win for for Toby here. Uh, what, what do you think for the uh, winner, winner of the episode here? Well, last week we broke the streak of of uh, you know answering the same person for winners. Uh, and I'm glad that we broke the streak because I'm going right back to it. I absolutely agree that Toby won the episode. I think that it makes so much sense uh, to put him in the top of this one. He sets out to do something. He's distracted. We get a little bit of a, you know, a shout out to, to attention deficit here. Uh, this is a true win for, for those with ADHD because Toby gets distracted by something and he spends the entire episode working on it. Uh, and to, to everybody else's confusion, and in the end, he gets what he wants. He he is successful in that regard. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I got to give it to Toby. Uh, I was very impressed with him this episode. He gets a uh, the best, perhaps the best response that you can get from President Bartlett, uh, a pat on the shoulder and a nice, you know, a little cheeky smile maybe, uh, even though you might have done something wrong on paper when the president agrees with you. That's a good feeling. So... It's it's pretty clear to me that we we have a Toby win this episode. Yeah, I think one one other thing also, right, is that you know, his you know the, the Miss Lanningham of it all, right, is that you know she's obviously, you know, always you know like she says to, to Charlie, where she always sort of struggles around Christmas time, and I think that her, you know, going to the funeral and doing that—that's you know a amount of closure or peace that she can find around Christmas time, and so I think that. Toby was also able to provide that for her too, right? So it's like not only is he obviously doing a very clear positive thing for for for, for Walter Huffnagel and for his brother and for you know the the, the, the third homeless guy there the, the, who's you know Walter's brother's friend, but you know he is getting a better understanding and knowledge of what is what is going on for a, you know, potentially important political issue. But he's also helping out, you know, his coworker and friend, Mrs. Lanningham. And so I think, you know, just a, a a really solid win. I think that it's in terms of winning an episode, it's like one of the best episodes we've had so far through 10 episodes. And so, you know, it took Toby a little while to, to, to get on the board here, but I think that, you know, a, a blowout here in episode 10 for him. Absolutely. One of the most unequivocal wins that we've seen so far. All right. Well, um, once again, thank you guys for, 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 for joining us today. Um, fun episode as always. I mean, I think that episode, like I said, it's on, on the IMDb star ratings. Um, it is the uh, eighth highest rated episode of all time and by far the highest rated season one episode. I think, like you said, it really is the first episode that feels like it could be any episode of the series, right? You know, it happens to be a season one episode, but very well could be a season three, four, five, six episode. I think that that is what makes it such a, such a, such a powerful episode here. Um, we will be back next week with uh, season one, episode 11, Lord John Marbury, which is an incredibly fun episode. Uh, titular Lord John, one of, if not my absolute favorite, uh, minor side character. So it'll be fun to do that as we dive more into the foreign policy of the White House. That'll be next week. See you then.